Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Shana Rosenblatt Maurer. She is a lecturer in modern Jewish literature. She teaches at Herzog College and the Schechter Institute in Israel. Today, it is my blessing to engage in a conversation with her regarding her newly published book, Mordecai Richler's Imperfect Search for Moral Values, published in Montreal and Kingston by McGill Queens University Press, 2022. Shana, I'm absolutely humbled to be in dialogue with you today. <laughs> Thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey? Uh, okay, I'll be happy to. I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I had a... Uh, pretty, I think, a common upbringing for a Jewish girl in Vancouver. I grew up in a conservative community, and I went to Young Judea and Young Judea summer camps. I would not necessarily have uh, pursued my my path into Jewish literature simply as a result of that background, but I had two very interesting experiences as a child that made a big impact on me. One was, as a very young girl, I went to see with my parents lies my father told me. And I don't know why, but I developed this sort of romance with Montreal and whatever was the old Montreal Jewish community based on that movie. So I have to thank that Ted Allen for that. And the other book that made a big impression on me was the All of a Kind Family series um, by Sidney Taylor. There was something about that that I just found so compelling. And as this girl in Vancouver, it gave me a sense of being part of something greater, part of this North American Jewish community that had interesting European roots in this Jewish culture that truthfully was somewhat foreign to me because Vancouver, the Vancouver that I grew up in, was already um, very much Canadianized Jewish community. 
I would have to say that specifically in terms of my pursuit of ritual, I had a few interesting experiences. One was that as a high school student, one day perusing the books in the library, I came across the apprenticeship of Diddy Kravitz. And that was my first encounter with ritual. And I'm not sure I understood the book that well, but it was intriguing. And it sort of opened up my eyes to this Canadian Jewish writer who was creating these very dynamic, very compelling Jewish characters in this Jewish world. And then sort of serendipity stepped in. And while I was a student at McGill, doing my BA at McGill, my favorite spot at Red Path Library for studying was right next to um, the ritual books on the shelves. And whenever I wanted to take a break from studying, I would always read ritual, funnily enough. Um, so those were sort of just by fluke, some of the experiences that impacted my interest in Jewish literature, my interest in um, this sort of Jewish creative expression. And the other factor was that I had some very wonderful teachers, some of them who really inspired me in terms of reading and writing, and others who specifically were very much mentors in terms of Jewish literature. So I just want to give a shout out to my teachers. In elementary school, I had teachers that really encouraged me in terms of my writing and gave me wonderful confidence, Mr. Logie and Mr. Gibb. In high school, I had a absolutely fabulous literature teacher, Mr. Morris, who definitely was a key influence in terms of my decision to do my BA in literature. Once I entered university, two of the most important influences in my life and my my educational life certainly were Professor Ruth Weiss, uh, formerly of McGill and then uh, Harvard, Professor Sidrez Rahi at Fibre University, and eventually my doctoral advisor, Professor Leona Toker. So I had some very wonderful influences, some formative influences, and all of them were positive influences. There was nothing that I was reacting to. It was all very much sort of a positive push forward on my journey. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Well, thank you for the question. The first impetus for the book was a suggestion by Professor Ariella Friedman of Concordia. She was a visiting professor at Hebrew U and we are discussing doctoral topics. And she said, well, why don't you write a Mordechai Richler? Very little has been done on Richler. And that got the wheels turning. And Subsequently, I uh, read an article by Professor Norm Raven, also of Concordia, and he described the interest in ritual as um, as, as uh, indifferent or lacking, and he felt that ritual had really been underserved as a really important great Canadian writer. And that made me think that there was really space and need for meaningful scholarly conversation on ritual. So those were the big influences. Um, in terms of what do I hope to convey to readers, there is this prevailing impression that Richler was this broker of dark, nihilistic satire. And when I went to the novels, went to Richler's writings, what I discovered is that Richler is not simply a nihilist, but he is a champion in a somewhat antiquated way of decency, common sense, and the venerable tradition of the Jewish people. And while he's by no means flawless in terms of 
his value system, he is not simply bleak. He really does have a positive agenda, although it is somewhat coded in a lot of satire and I would say a fair amount of cynicism. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? I think that this question sort of elaborates on your previous question. And my, my book is uh, focuses on a writer who has been commonly perceived as a self-hating Jew, a reluctant Canadian, a dark social critic. And my, my attempt was to portray him as a writer who was actually grasping for a way of coming to terms with his own identity, his identity as a Jew, as a writer, as a Canadian, and making some sense of a world that he saw as highly paradoxical, a world full of heartbreak, absurdity, monstrosity, delight, a writer who was trying to find some sort of meaning and coherence in a world that is often very jumbled. What does your title mean? Why is Richler's search for morals and values imperfect? What would it look like for a search for values to be perfect? I want to stress here that I deal with Richler's books. So his own personal search, I can't really comment on. And there are wonderful biographies by Charles Foran, for example, that discuss that in more detail. But in terms of the books, Richler aimed to be a serious writer, what he called a serious writer. And for him, a serious writer is a, a writer who, at root, is on a moral quest, engaged in a moral search. And I think that Richler never felt that he had it all figured out. Um, and he also knew that his moral vision was evolving. Um, he also died at a time when he seemed to be at a juncture in terms of rethinking some of his moral positions, whether they had to do with women, the gay community, uh, the possibility that his comfort zone in his own thinking was as a liberal conservative, which was not where he would have always placed himself. So it's imperfect because it's not static, it's dynamic. It's imperfect because it was cut short. And I think it's also imperfect because moral systems in general tend to have flaws, have weaknesses. And that is something one encounters when reading his books. You see the quest for a moral search, but the fact of the, mor fact of the moral search is never ideal. What does it mean to you to read Richler's novels as a woman? How does your personal lived experience contribute to the ways you interpret his works and respond to his storylines? That is an excellent question. When I discussed the possibility of writing on Richler with Ariella Friedman, she presented this caveat. It might be difficult to write on Richler as a woman. I began writing in Richler um, in about 2011, 2012. And by that time, um, there had been, there had been a, a period of space. Richler had only passed away. Uh, the Richler conversation wasn't quite as heated. It wasn't percolating to the same degree it had in earlier years. And I think that I had enough time and also I was confident enough as a woman to deal with his texts. His writing is problematic regarding women. As I don't want to call Richard misogynist and I don't want to suggest that um, he was the worst of the anti-women writers, but certainly he came from a certain generation. He was locked into that generation in terms of sexualizing women, in terms of seeing women in a reductive light. However, by the end of his career, I think that was changing a little bit. And I argue in my book that 
uh, Barney's version is actually a bit of a mea culpa, that he realizes that he had been somewhat out of step in terms of seeing women uh, as, as agents of their own destiny. Um, at the same time, there is writing in his on-record material that is very troubling. I myself uh, found it somewhat of a, I won't say conflict, somewhat of a challenge, but certainly there are writers who I find much more challenging in this regard. And I would say that I would have had a much more difficult time, for example, writing on Philip Roth for that very reason. How are women and females depicted in Richler's work? Women in Richler's work in some ways are depicted like everyone else, meaning that if they meet Richler's standards, they're treated with kid gloves, they're treated generously. If they don't meet Richler's standards, they're somewhat eviscerated with his satire. Women need to be intelligent, attractive, self-assured, but also subordinate, also demure to a certain extent, not too brash. And we see, for example, in Barney's version with the character of the second Mrs. Panofsky, um, a woman that Richor despises, a woman he, just, he, he depicts as superficial, pretentious, um, loud, obnoxious, uh, intelligent, but completely indifferent in terms of any kind of intellectual pursuits. And this is the kind of woman that Richard despised the most. However, what's interesting about this character, the second Mrs. Panofsky, is she has characteristics that in a man, Richard would cherish. cherish. She is loyal. She's a good daughter. She respects her parents. She is dedicated to her husband. And those factors are sort of eliminated as um, positive traits because they don't fit into Richler's ideal picture of a good woman. How did Richler depict the United States in his stories and novels? What do his literary works say about U.S.-Canadian relations? I want to I backtrack and give a little bit of background to that question. Richler understood that as a Canadian writer, he was going to be limited. He was never going to get the fanfare that an American writer would receive. But he made his peace with this because he had seen the model of A.M. Klein. A.M. Klein um, declined into decline. <laughs> Forgive me for the pun. Uh, A.M. Klein suffered. He, he, he suffered from tremendous depression because he felt that he never received the recognition that he deserved because he was a Canadian writer, that he wasn't part of the inner hub of the American Jewish intellectuals, and this tortured him. Richler saw this model and decided that he was not going to go this route. He, um, he found a certain amount of camaraderie in terms of American writers, but he understood that he was not really... Um, shoulder to shoulder with them in terms of the kind of praise and recognition that they received. Richler, to a certain extent, aligned himself with Europe, and that gave him a different type of perspective, a different type of cachet. And pulling together these threads, what Canada gave him in terms of perspective, in terms of a certain kind of identity, what it gave him to be aware of the American context, but not jealous of it, 
and also to have an openness to the richness of the European cultural scene, that for Richler was sufficient. And so he came to his own perspective on the United States with a fairly decent level of equilibrium. That gave him the confidence to mock Canada in terms of the Canadian inferiority complex of the United States. He felt that Canada was always striving to prove itself, to measure up to the great Southern neighbor. And he felt that this was somewhat laughable and that Canada would do better to simply invest in itself and recognize whatever benefits and greatness Canada had to offer. So he wrote a lot, a lot about this in the novels. In the novels, Canada is called the next door place. Um, there's a great deal of satire, Canadians trying to extol the virtues of Canada to American visitors and so forth. So Richard plays on that a lot. He took a lot of heat for it. Um, he was considered an ingrate, ungrateful for the privilege of being Canadian. Uh, Farley Mowat, in particular, was very harsh in his denigration of Richward as a Canadian. Um, but Richward didn't mind, and he was somewhat, um, somewhat amused by all of the noise around that topic. And he admired the United States. He didn't feel any need to be American, and he, in his own satiric way, encouraged Canadians to be more at peace with their own Canadian identities. Can you describe the plot and characters in The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz? What happens in this novel? In The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, there is a young man who feels that he has to do anything to make his mark in life. He wants to impress his elderly Zeta, his grandfather. He wants to he wants to um, exact a certain kind of revenge on the various anti-Semitic forces that are at play in Quebec. And through all sorts of machinations, a lot of them underhanded, he manages to succeed. And he's often considered a villain. He's often considered one of the great scoundrels of Jewish literature. And certainly he behaves in a somewhat abhorrent way in many instances. What is redeeming about Duddy Kravitz is it's clear he has a conscience. It's also clear that he has no pretense about himself. He does not pretend to be an upstanding citizen. He recognizes that his goal is to succeed. His goal is to create some kind of comeuppance for what he has suffered as an unloved son, what he has suffered as a Jew in a Montreal context that is fairly hostile to Jews. The Anglo community really is not interested in the Jews and sees them as a somewhat unfortunate inheritance. And of course, the French Canadian community, which refused to accept the Jews in any way initially. That's why the Jews ended up going to the English schools because the French Canadians wouldn't admit them to their schools. So here's Duddy. He is a representative of this community, uh, one that Ruth Weiss describes as sort of being forced back on itself into its ins insularity. And he tries to create some sort of personal justice. 
he does not always do it in a legal way and he does not always do it in a decent way. But there is a backstory and there is a certain amount of compassion one feels for Duddy in his quest. And I just want to backtrack again to your question about Canadian-U.S. relations. The novel, in a very interesting way, addresses that. One of the people that Duddy really harasses or takes advantage of in the novel is uh, a man he employs who is an American. And it seems that part of Duddy's exploitation is also a metaphor for a very strong Canadian impulse. And this is 1959, to try to sort of pull one over on the United States to get the upper hand. And while it seems reprehensible in terms of Duddy's treatment of this worker, in fact, there's almost a wink-wink here from Richware saying, you know what? Canadians are not imbeciles and we are not the unfortunate northern neighbors. And uh, we, we are savvy and capable in our own way. So there's a lot of complexity in terms of what goes on in Duddy Kravitz's path. Can you describe Richler's family? Yes, I'd be happy to. Richler was the second son of Mo Richler. Mo Richler was the oldest son of a very large, well-known Montreal family, the Richlers. The grandparents were Orthodox Jews. They had 14, uh, I think 14 children, I may be mistaken, uh, approximately 14 children, Mo being the oldest. The vast majority of the children, grandchildren, and so forth uh, continued to live Orthodox lives, some of them Lubavitchers. And it was extremely scandalous when Mordechai Richard, at the age of 13, told his family that he was no longer going to be an observant Jew on Shabbat. They would find him at the pool halls, certainly not in synagogue. And he was publicly humiliated by his grandfather. One Shabbat afternoon, he was beaten and thrown out of the house in front of the entire family. And this was a very influential experience. This was kind of the formative experience that triggered a lot of the hostility towards orthodoxy that characterized much of Richler's earlier work. Nevertheless, Richler never became what I would call purely anti-Jewish, and he never became the sort of great enemy of religion. He definitely was angry about religion, and he was satiric at times, but he never became as, um, I would say, as much of a nemesis as one might expect. Overall, the family was was pretty hostile towards Rich, where he was, he was desperately distant from much of the family, although he had certain individuals who he continued to have a relationship with. And um, it's interesting. I live in Efrat. There are two first cousins of Richler in Efrat. And um, you, you see that when Richler's name comes up, there's curiosity, there's interest, uh, there's reluctance. He was um, a bit of a polarizing, divisive figure in the family, but not an irrelevant figure. Can you describe the plot and characters in Barney's version? Why is this novel significant? Well, I want to, before I address the issue of the plot, I want to suggest that Barney's version is in some ways 
um, Richgore's clarion call for where he was at at the end of his life. There's a real shift in the discourse, the values discourse in this novel, which I think is extremely important. There's a lot more humility in this novel. There's a lot more self-reflection. It's the only novel written in the first person. And Richler was always very adamant that one should not confuse the author with his books. Uh, but of course, when you write in first person, you're inviting the reader to make a closer connection between the the first person narrator and the author. I'm going to put that aside and, and insist that it's important to respect Richler's request and understand that Barney Panofsky, the hero, is not Richler. And yet, I think it is Richler's attempt to suggest that he was undergoing a rethinking of some of his earlier positions. I think the novel, the novel is about a man who is coming to terms with the decisions he's made in his life, the choices he's made in his life, while he's in the midst of slipping into dementia. So we have an extremely compelling storytelling framework here where we have a character who is trying to set the record straight on his life. We don't know if he's simply misremembering. We don't know how much a factor the dementia is playing. And we only have tidbits of interjection from other characters in terms of direct speech, in terms of um, uh, metafictional interventions to give a reader a sense of what's really going on. But what comes out is that there is a kind of remorse, regret, and introspection that is not necessarily present in any of Richard's other novels, particularly in terms of his views on women, his views on the gay community, his views on liberal sympathies versus conservative positions. And Richler, I think, saw himself for most of his life, very much as a liberal with a lot of common sense. And by this, by the time he was writing this novel, he might have crossed the line into being a centrist conservative with strong liberal sympathies. What, if anything, is Jewish about Mordecai Richler's literary oeuvre? When Richler started writing, he was accused in the Jewish media of being self-hating, uh, anti-Semitic, a mouthpiece for Jew-hating of all kinds. Richler never strayed far from Jewish concerns. And I think that not only were Jewish concerns central to the vast majority of writings, but he saw these Jewish concerns as someone as a someone of a as a of a prism for how he saw the world. So the Jewish concerns were often uh, upfront. And a metaphor, if you will, for a lot of other perspectives on his views of the world. Jewish characters are dominant. This is what he knew. This is what he wrote about. And even in a novel such as The Incomparable Attack, which really focuses on um, an individual from the indigenous community and his experience in the Canadian landscape of the 60s, it really is actually, I would say, very much a metaphor for the experience of the Jewish community and the Jewish community in Canada. So Richard really never strays very far from that. And even in his first novel, The Acrobats, 
which is not a particularly Jewish novel, there is Jewish content. It was hard for Richler to be totally devoid of Jewish content altogether. Having said that, uh, his Jewish interests were not simply amorphous. They were not coincidental. He was a great defender of the tradition of Jewish peoplehood. He had a lot of respect for Jewish peoplehood. He had a lot of respect for a lot of Jewish achievement. And I'm not just speaking about Mark Spitz or Nobel Prizes, but the idea that the Jews were a people that valued education, the Jews uh, put a high stress on being forward thinking, um, contributing to the world a certain kind of literary, legal, philosophical foundation that he saw as very much part of the human evolution towards a, a kinder, more decent, dignified world. So for him, all of those Jewish factors were very important. And one of the ways that he integrated these Jewish elements was that he usually has a character in his novels, not the protagonist, but a, I refer to the character as the hero figure. Hero figures are usually the protagonists, but in this case, the hero figures are not the protagonists. They are mentors. They are inspirations. They are heroes in the sense of being courageous. And they are almost exclusively Jewish men who have a kind of integrity that Richard identifies as an ideal kind of Jewish pride and uh, Jewish moral courage. Can you describe the plot and characters in Son of a Smaller Hero? Why is it noteworthy? Son of a Smaller Hero is the classic early novel. Very often, a writer's first novel will be highly biographical. In this case, Son of a Smaller Hero is actually the second of Richard's novels, but it is the kind of proverbial biographical novel about the Jewish young man who turns on his roots, alienates himself from his family, and has to find his way in the world in terms of finding a, an identity that he is comfortable with and finding how he is going to have some sort of connectivity with his family and with the Jewish identity that has been his core identity from his earliest years. Um, Jew Son of a Smaller Hero was often taught in schools in Montreal, possibly in wider Quebec, I don't know. It, it is very much a novel of uh, the 50s in Montreal, very much a novel of the Jewish community's experience. And it's also the novel of the angry young man. It fits in with that genre of the times. It's a attempt to be somewhat of a no modernist novel, uh, a little bit more spare in its writing, uh, dealing with existential questions, dealing with uh, Canada in a way that wasn't pastoral, dealing with Canada in a way that was urban, which was somewhat forward thinking for the time. So it was one of those novels that in a lot of ways was trailblazing. How are Judaism and the Jewish faith depicted in Richler's novels? What role does religion play in his literary output? So thank you for that question. I'm going to give a general answer and then I'll discuss it in terms of some of his works. Richler, throughout his career, without exception, had tremendous regard for what he would have described as old-fashioned 
religion. Old-fashioned religion meaning authentic, genuine, committed, uh, an, an old-world religion that was based on a lot of faith, a certain kind of wonder, a certain kind of humility. Humility meaning that we don't understand everything in the world. There are wonders in the world. There is, there's mystery in the world. There are horrors in the world, and we don't understand everything. Having said that, religion that he perceived as hypocritical, pretentious, self-serving, was absolutely deplorable in Richwar's eyes. He loathed it, and he was extremely vicious in his portrayal in the kind of Judaism he perceived that was being lived in that kind of light. He uh, integrated more and more Judaism into his books as time went along, and Ritzker, very much in a sort of classic sense, in terms of what uh, how, how, how we would perceive um, discursive elements being written into uh, our narratives, he has characters whose experience uh, is very much emblematic of how those characters are portrayed in the greater sense of the novel. So if we have a character who is clearly a decent person in the novel and is a religious person, is somewhat of a vote of confidence for Judaism. And we see that, for example, in Solomon Gursky was here. Solomon Gursky was here. We have uh, a character who is a Lubavitch Hasid. And while he is unusual, eccentric, extreme, he's decent and he's honest and he's genuine. And it gives a kind of stamp of approval towards um, a faith that is um, true and comes from the heart. When we have faith that is um, utilitarian, uh, self-righteous, self-serving, that is all, all bets are off, and that becomes, um, you know, really horrific in Richler's novels. How do Richler's novels present Zionism and the state of Israel? There is almost a clean divide in Richler's perspective on Israel. Israel, the fledgling state. Israel, the Jewish country that is being attacked. Israel that is being victimized. Israel that's being in jeopardy is a heroic nation. It is a David against Goliath. That is the Israel that has Richwar's full praise. However, in later years, Richwar became quite critical of Israel in his on-record writing and also in the novels. Uh, he was extremely skeptical of Israel in a, I'm going to, not, not just a post-67 context, but certainly in a post Yom Kippur context, so into the 70s, into the era of Menachem Begin and the Likud and so forth. He was very wary of a powerful Israel, of a strong Israel, of an Israel that was acting from a position of strength. So when Israel was being threatened, Richard was its great champion. When Richard felt that Israel was acting from a position of power, from a position that he felt was possibly uh, exploitation of power, he became very, very critical. What forms of humor appear in Richler's writing? What do his novels teach us about comedy, satire, and irony? Richler was a great practitioner of satire. He was a big fan of irony. At the same time, 
Richard was, in some ways, a great traditionalist. He believed in order, and he believed in um, decency winning the day. And so his satire is traditional in the sense that modern satire often casts a very wide net. And one is not always clear who the real object of the satire is. What is the writer really trying to reveal with the satire? What is the target? What is being upended? That wasn't Richwer's modus operandi. Richwer had clear targets and he used satire to critique, to condemn, and he used it in a biting but very harsh way. Having said that, there are certain all sort of modes of satire in Richard's work that goes for low-hanging fruit. Um, satire that is simply playful. Satire that is um, more about the humor than the contents. And uh, the critic Francine Prose has written that Richard, one of the problems with Richard is that sometimes he does uh, humor of banality much better than his condemnation of evil. Sometimes it's just easier to play with matters that aren't quite as weighty. Having said that, uh, Richler does make it clear that there are certain uh, historical moments, social moments, cultural moments that are certainly, that are, excuse, excuse me, that are clearly unacceptable. They demand response. And often he brings in heavy-handed satire to make it clear that those issues deserve a backlash. How does your book advance our understanding of heroism? What role do anti-heroes and anti-heroism play in Richler's novels? One of the things that I think is extremely unusual in Richler's novels is that the heroes, and I've mentioned the hero figures before, as opposed to the protagonists, are usually illiberal renegades. They are not progressives. They are not compassionate. They are not interested in a kinder, gentler world. They're interested in justice. And in their quest for justice, they are often unkind. They are often mavericks. They are often renegades. And this is unusual. We expect our heroes to be law-abiding, decent, upstanding. And that's not always the case. That doesn't mean that they are not genuine justice seekers, but their paths to justice, the roots, the roots to justice that they consider uh, most expedient, most effective, are often quite radical and even heretical, but that doesn't bother them. They chart their own course. And they're anti-heroes in the sense that sometimes they seem to be scoundrels. Sometimes they're unexpected. Sometimes they're in the background, and nevertheless, they are often the voices and the actors that bring forth the most moral positions in the novels. And I think what Richler shows us is that we have to be careful when we're talking about being law-abiding, being, um, uh, being upstanding, being good actors, because sometimes we have to use common sense Sometimes we have to act in ways that are not necessarily the accepted norms, 
to create the kind of realities that are urgent and necessary in a certain moment. Which piece by Richler is your personal favorite? Why? What speaks to you about it? So that's a hard question. But I'm going to start off by saying that Dudi Kravitz is one of my favorites, even though Dudi is very controversial. And there has been an enormous amount written about how uh, Dudi is simply an unacceptable uh, Jewish hero, Jewish protagonist, I'll correct myself. Ruth Weiss has written that the book Dudi Kravitz is not an acceptable um an acceptable work for the canon of modern Jewish literature because it portrays ambition as a specifically Jewish kind of crime. But I think that misses the point in some ways. Dudi Kravitz is a book that in some ways portrays the longstanding reality that Jews have been in impossible situations. That does not justify bad behavior. That does not justify immoral actions. But it creates a kind of understanding and it also delves into the psyche of a people that has been uh, downtrodden and often had its hand tied, its hands tied in terms of survival. So Dudi Kravitz speaks to me. I think that for all of the humor in Dudi Kravitz and all the readability, there's a lot going on that's very important. I would say the next book that is a favorite would be Barney's version, because I really do read it as a book with a high degree of compassion and self-exploration. And I really appreciate it. And I also appreciate that Richard at that point in his career could be so sensitive and be so perceptive in terms of the kind of perspectives that he had really kind of been jockeying with for uh, so long. And I'll add that the third pieces of rituals that I really enjoy are vignettes uh, from the street. And those are short stories, but also autobiographical vignettes about his life. And I'll say that when I read them as an 18-year-old at Redpath Library, I only could remember thinking was, I'm so glad I don't know any famous writers because I would never want to end up in any of their works portrayed in this way because he does not always create flattering portrayals of the people in his world, but there is so much color, so much depth, so much uh, truth in his depictions of that world that one cannot help but I think sort of uh, being captivated by his, his portrayal of a very interesting, rich, colorful moment in Canadian Jewish history. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you kindly share with us where your time has gone since completing this book? What have you been working on since this project has been behind you? So, um, I after finishing the book, I uh, completed a postdoc at the University of British Columbia, and then the subject of my work was transgressive post-Holocaust narratives, which sounds like a fancy, somewhat incomprehensible title, but what it really was was an exploration of literary texts that take issue with how what I will call the Holocaust, Holocaust institutionalization has 
developed in the last few decades, whether that is the entertainment industry, the uh, museum networks, the academicization, the education, and so forth of Holocaust memorialization. And this is, this is uh, really kind of an extension of the thinking of writers like Cynthia Ozick, who have really taken issue with what has happened to the diary of Anne Frank and how it has been a touchstone for all sorts of projects, which Ozick feels has, have been highly exploitive. And so Ritual was one of the main works, one of the main writers I worked, looked at, but I also looked at Philip Roth and Shulam Oslander, um, Nathan Englander, Toba Reich, and others who have really delved into this subject. Following that, I have written and presented quite a bit on Russian-American Jewish writers and the evolution we've seen since the arrival of Gary Steingart um, and the Russian Demitons Handbook in terms of the American Jewish writing. Um, and coming up, I will be presenting a paper on the wonderful Yiddish writer Chava Rosenfarb at a tribute conference in Lodz in October. And that's sort of where my work has taken me up until now. Happy in addition, I, sorry, I just want to say, in addition, I, uh, I've been teaching and I have been a lecturer at Herzog College, a lecturer in actually mainly in English literature and the Schechter Institute, where I teach uh, courses in modern Jewish literature, a wide range of topics from wider surfing courses to some narrower courses, such as my upcoming course, uh, sc uh, Scammers and Sitters in uh, Contemporary Jewish Literature, and then, of course, we'll be featuring. I wish you the very best of luck, and I would like to thank you for your eloquent, erudite, and thoughtful answers throughout the course of our conversation and our dialogue. I could not be more thankful. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me and hosting me. I'm, I greatly appreciate it. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. To our listeners, I am your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Shana Rosenblatt Maurer. We've been discussing her newly published book, Mordecai Richler's Imperfect Search for Moral Values, published in Montreal and Kingston by McGill Queens University Press, 2022. Shanna is a lecturer in modern Jewish literature. She teaches at Herzog College and the Schechter Institute in Israel. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you.